Hey everyone, um, I'm Janet V. I'm recovered from compulsive eating and bulimia. Happy to see you. Um, so I had my talk prepared as I posted on the group me on two employers, really good chapter with good recovery principles, but there are a lot of new people here. And I just um, hurried up and found something on my computer that I thought might be more helpful. I have not prepped it. I'm just doing it from my notes. So if I stumble a bit, um, forgive me, but I want to talk about miracles. So um, the, the dictionary definition of a miracle is a surprising and welcome event that's considered to be the work of a divine agency. Well, for us addicts, what is that surprising and welcoming event? Um, page 25 of our big books tells us this that we have had deep and effective spiritual experiences which have revolutionized our whole attitude toward life, toward our fellows and toward God's universe. The central fact of our lives today is the absolute certainty that our creator has entered into our hearts and lives in a way which is indeed miraculous. And this is what's miraculous, what the miracle is. God coming down from heaven or wherever God hangs out and enter in, entering into my heart and my life, me with messed up me. And what does he do there? He does a renovation job on my heart so that my priorities become more like his priorities so that my selfish self-centeredness is replaced by his love, his love for life, for fellows, for his universe. A miracle is when God comes down and changes the soil of my soul so that the illness of compulsive eating cannot survive there. God basically kicks the obsession to the curb. And how cool is it that our book gives us this recipe for a miracle? And the recipe is found on page 57 of the big book, Alcoholics Anonymous, at the end of the story about the minister's son. It's a story of a man, a minister's son, obviously, who's confined to a hospital because of his drinking. And his story starts on page 56. So I'll just read some excerpts. Um, one night when confined in a hospital, he was approached by an alcoholic who had known a spiritual experience. Our friend's gorge rose as he bitterly cried out, if there is a God, he certainly hasn't done anything for me. But later alone in his room, he asked himself, is it possible that all the religious people I've known are wrong? While pondering the answer, he felt as though he lived in hell. Then, like a thunderbolt, a great thought came. It crowded out all else. Who are you to say there is no God? The man recounts that he tumbled out of bed to his knees. In a few seconds, he was overwhelmed by a conviction of the presence of God. It poured over and through him with the certainty and majesty of a great tide at flood. He stood in the presence of infinite power and love. His alcoholic problem was taken away. That very night it disappeared. Save for a few brief moments of temptation, the thought of drink has never returned. And at such times, a great revulsion has risen up in him. God had restored his sanity. And then right after talking about this story, the big book says, what is this but a miracle of healing? yet its elements are simple. Okay, so this is crazy. Not only are they telling me I can have a miracle, but they're giving me the elements of it, like a recipe. 
and they're saying it's simple. And they say it just starts with two things. One, circumstances made him willing to believe. Two, he humbly offered himself to his maker. And that's really the first three steps of this program. Let's take a look at how he did them and how we might be able to do them. Um, first, he says circumstances made him willing to believe. And it's pretty obvious the circumstances they're talking about is he recognized he's an alcoholic. I mean, this dude was locked up in an asylum for drinking. Um, his full story is the chapter in the big book, Our Southern Friend. And on page 214, we see a fellow patient asking him if he thinks he's hopeless. I know it, replies the minister's son. Okay, so for us, we're not locked up in asylums. What does it mean to be hopeless? What does it mean to know we're powerless over food? Um, I'll tell you what it doesn't mean first. It doesn't mean um, someone saying, I must not be power or I must not want to stop because I keep picking up the food. We don't binge because we don't have a strong enough desire to stop. We binge because we don't have the power to stop. So this program isn't about whipping up our desire. So we really want it. It's about accessing power. It's like if I were a diabetic, um, it wouldn't be that I didn't want my pancreas to be malfunctioned badly enough. It was that I needed insulin. So I would need someone to teach me how to inject insulin. So the first thing I would have to know is that I have a defective pancreas. And so what I needed to learn is that when it came to food, I had um, a defective mental defense. And here's how the big book talks about it. And then I'll try to break it down a bit. Um, on page 24, it says we're unable at certain times to bring into our consciousness with sufficient force the memory of the suffering and humiliation of a week or a month ago. We're without defense against the first drink. Okay, memory, defense, suffering, like what the heck does that all mean? So here's how I understand it. Normally, my defense against doing something dangerous is my memory, right? Um, I have a terrible cat allergy. So stored in my memory are all these data points of cat-induced asthma attacks. So if let's say um, my friend Cynthia, I finally have a sponsee who lives 11 minutes from me and not 1100 miles. So let's say she invites me over and I'm really excited, but I know Cynthia has three cats. So before I can think to say yes, my memory will grab the data points of cat-induced asthma attacks, send a thought to run across the bridge that connects my memory to my conscious mind to say, stop, danger, you can't go, y'all have an asthma attack. My memory keeps me from danger. Let's talk about food. So my best example is in college, I used to binge on a certain kind of cookie, it came in a box of 20, and I would tell myself, I'm just going to go out and have one. Well, we all know how that story ended. I would eat the whole box of 20 plus. So stored in my memory are all these data points of, I say I'm going to eat one, but I end up eating all 20. So there I go, about to go out, go downtown, buy the box of cookies, 
and my memory grabs the data points, generates a thought to run across the bridge to my conscious mind to say, stop danger. You won't be able to stop at one. You're going to eat the whole box. You're going to hate yourself. You're going to gain weight. Don't do it. Except when it came to food, the bridge was broken and the thought couldn't get across. My memory failed to hold me in check. I had no defense against the first compulsive bite. I used to hear this expression at meetings, this slogan, keep the memory green. That is an untrue slogan. I could not keep the memory green. There, it was like someone just took a scissors and snipped the connection between my memory of horrible binge hangovers and my conscious mind. I had no defense. And the minister's son who didn't believe in <laughs> yet, when he realized that he had no defense against the first drink, said to his friend in the hospital, I'll do anything. And that anything included asking, can all the worthwhile people I've known be wrong about God? He became open-minded about God. But there's a great um, divide between being open-minded about the possibility of God existing and then trusting God enough to surrender our will and our lives to him. So how do we do that? Um, well, for me, I like the clues that come in the chapter, we agnostic, or actually let's just go to step two, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. That one line gives me four clues about God, even if I know nothing. Okay, if there's this power that's going to restore me to sanity, this power has to have a consciousness, right? Like the wind is a power greater than me, but the wind can't think and figure out how to restore me to sanity. If this power is going to restore me to sanity, then this power must be smart because I have two master's degrees and I could not figure out how to put down the food. So, um, this power must be smarter than me and smarter than this illness. And then this power must be strong, stronger than me. So let's say I have one unit of power and the illness has a hundred units. This power has to have at least 101 units of power. So we know has a consciousness, smart and strong. And then the last one, and to me, the most important, so let's say there is this power who can figure out how to restore me to sanity. Why would he bother unless he cared about me? So step two tells me that God cares about me. Came to believe that a power greater than myself could restore me to sanity. Well, that's great. Um, but how come we have so much trouble believing in this God? And page 55 really um, tells us about that. So it's actually my favorite line in the book. And it says this, deep down in every man, woman, and child is the fundamental idea of God. Then it says, it may be obscured by calamity, by pomp, by worship of other things, but in some form or other, it is there. Okay, deep down in every man, woman, and child is the fundamental idea of God. So that means when God created me, right, 
in me, because deep down in me are two kidneys, two lungs, one heart, and the fundamental idea of God. See, I believe he loves us so much that when he creates us, along with, you know, the liver and kidneys and all the other organs, he plants the fundamental idea of himself. So it's there. We all know it. But it says it's obscured. Think of it like spiritual cataracts, right? If we have cataracts, we can't see. The world is still there. We just can't see it because our vision is clouded. Well, what's clouding our spiritual vision? And it tells us three things. Calamity. So that's like bad things that have happened to us or other people. You know, that was Bill Wilson's problem, right? On page 11, he says like the war, the chicanery, all this stuff he'd seen made him think that if there was a devil, the devil was the boss. He actually says that page 11. Um, that obscured his view of God. And the person who carried the message to him basically said, Bill, you know, I don't know. I don't understand why all of these things happen. All I know is that God is good. And when I surrendered my life to God, amazing things happened, starting with, not ending with, like starting with the removal of the obsession. The removal of the food obsession, friends, is just God's opening act. So there's calamity. We don't understand it. I always say that I will ask him things like, why did you, you know, why did human trafficking exist? Why, you know, why was there poverty in the world? After I asked the number one burning question on my mind, which is, did OJ really do it? After that, I ask him the deep questions of the universe. Um, but, I, but for now, I can say, I don't know. I'm not as smart as God. I don't know. And it's okay for me not to know. The next one is um, pomp. Well, that's by me putting myself on God's throne, by me thinking that everyone should do what I want and everything should go my way. And that doesn't work, right? In chapter five, it tells us we quit playing God. And the third one is worship of other things, right? What are my idols? What are the things about which I say, I won't be happy unless, right? Unless. Um, when I was in college, I had a boyfriend who was abusive to me, but because I was a good addict, instead of kicking him to the curb, I turned him into an idol. I lived for his approval. If he was mad at me, and he was mad at me a lot, um, I was depressed, if he was happy with me, I was over the moon, like clearly not a healthy relationship. And thankfully we parted ways. Um, but when I care too much about another person, whether it's my spouse, my child, or my boss, I'm in trouble. Or if I care too much about other things, right? My job, my possessions, my status, my right to leisure time, then I'm in trouble. I've made that person or that those things into an idol. And an idol is anything, even if it's a good thing, that I put ahead of God. Um, you know, and back to being blocked by calamity. It really takes, for me, it took me saying that I'm just not as smart as God. Um, on my wedding day, I wanted sunshine, but it was like pretty much a monsoon. Um, 
And then I had read somewhere, if God answered every bride's prayer for no rain on her wedding day, there'd be no food supply because no crops could grow. So I need to realize that when I'm saying God shouldn't do ABC, what I'm really saying is that if I were God, I wouldn't do A, B, or C. And um, again, I have two master's degrees, but I am horribly unqualified, underqualified for the job of God. And the evidence was my life, which was a total train wreck, right? I was someone who was binging and purging up to six times a day. I had to have my esophagus surgically retightened. I would steal food. I would steal money for food. Um, not qualified to run my own life even, let alone the universe. Um, so those are some of the blocks to God that our program talks us about. And it's our job in recovery to get through those blocks. Um, but again, God planted the idea of himself within us. Remember, the big book says that God doesn't make too hard terms with those who seek them, right? How could he? The knowledge of himself is right in there. He planted it in us. We just have to water it. Um, and I think one of the ways we water it is by prayer. For someone who doesn't yet believe in God, I think the maybe prayer is okay. And it can go something like this. Um, God maybe you exist, maybe you don't. Um, and if you do exist, I'm not sure if you care about me, but if you do exist and you do care, I need some help. The worst thing that can happen is nothing, right? We're talking to dead air and nothing happens. But what if there really is a God? What if there is? And that prayer is the catalyst that sets things in motion and causes God to spring into action on your behalf. Um, so another good way to work through our trust issues in, with God, because I think, right, that's really the crux of the problem. If I really trust God, then I just don't worry about things. So here's something that really helps is the ABCs on page 60. It starts on um, the A. Let me just read it so I get the wording exactly for you guys. that we believed, A, that we were compulsive eaters and could not manage our own lives. We usually get that, right? That's why we're here. We say, my life's a train wreck. I've got a broken bridge. My memory of my binges can't make it to my conscious mind. B, that probably no human power could have relieved our compulsive eating. Well, that's true. Some people say, well, I can make the group my higher power. What if the group all goes out and binges? Then what? then I'm in trouble. And the group, while it can give me loving support, can't do a renovation job on my heart. And then C, that God could and would if he were sought. So if we go through that carefully, right, we can ask ourselves, do we believe that God could restore other people to sanity? And we'd all have to say yes, right? Because we're on this line and we see so many people who were train wrecks who were restored to sanity. So, okay, God could restore others to sanity. And then we can ask ourselves, 
do you believe God can restore you personally to sanity? Now, he may not want to, but could he if he wanted to? Is he strong enough to? And generally people say, well, yeah, if he did it for others, he could do it for me. But here's where they got stuck, get stuck. He would. God could, but he won't for me. He doesn't want to for me. And this is really important to go through because if we can get through these, and there's only five reasons that I could think of why someone would believe that God won't restore them to sanity. So if we work through them, then we get that. Then we realize, oh yeah, God's here and God cares about me. So here's the first. Um, if someone says, I don't deserve it because I've done this really bad thing or really bad things. Um, I mean, right? That was me. I used to do really nice things like pretend I was mugged or raped to get attention, slash myself with a razor blade. I mean, I was like not a nice person. I didn't care who I hurt. Um, when I was dating guys in college, I would either call them a GC or an MT, either a good catch or a meal ticket. I was like, not a very nice person. Um, I, but thank God the founders of this program all had done some bad things. So they built in a ninth step, a chance to make amends. So we have a chance to set right things we've done wrong. We don't have to do it right away because there's a process. When I um, was first told about the big book, someone said, okay, read through it. See if you're willing to do it all. And I read through and I said, yeah, there's this one amend I'm not willing to make. I'm not willing to go back to my ex-boyfriend and tell him that I'd faked a rape to get attention. And she said, are you willing to trust that by the time you get to the eighth step, you'll be a different person? And I said, okay, okay. Because I was, I was at a dead end and I was a different person by then. And I did make that amend. Um, he's not the husband who's here now. Unfortunately, he wasn't thrilled with me, but that's okay. I did my part. Um, so that's the first thing. I've done some really bad thing. The second thing is, well, I caused this illness, you know, either by the books of selfishness and self-centeredness is the root of the illness. Sometimes, you know, we think, well, I caused this by something. And this is what I say. First, you know, this is a disease, so we can debate whether or not we cause this or we're born with it or whatever. But let's say we did cause it. So let's say I run across the street and I don't look both ways and I get hit by a truck and I break both legs. Am I going to say to the orthopedic surgeon, don't put my legs in casts because I caused it because I didn't look both ways before I crossed the street? Of course not. We never do that with physical things, you know, and doctors. But suddenly when it comes to asking God for help, like we get all noble and say, I can't bother God. It's okay. Bother God. Um, the third thing is I've tried this so many times before and it doesn't work. And to that, I would just hold up my cell phone and say, I could try a hundred times, a thousand times to take a picture. Oh, yeah, I'm doing it again. I'm pushing the on. Oh, oh I just did the emergency. Didn't want that. Um, I just I did. I just hit the SOS. OK, so you see, I'm not very good at um, doing things on my cell phone. So um, I can try 100 times to take a picture and I don't. So if I say it's never going to work and then, you know, like 
my son comes in and says, mom, you're hitting the on off button. You're hitting the emergency call button. Here's the camera button. Suddenly I can do it. Maybe sometimes we just need to be shown the right button and be willing to push it. The fourth thing, and I think this is true for most of us, we say, I don't deserve it because I'm just not worthy. Not, that's not like a bad thing, a concrete thing that I can fix. Like I robbed a bank, I can go pay the bank back. Um, it's this feeling of shame. You know, maybe how we say how we were raised, this just vague feeling of not being good enough, not worthy, right? Low self-esteem. So we have two options. We could go to therapy and give a therapist like thousands of dollars and he or she will try to convince us that yes, we're worthy and we have self should have self-esteem and all that. Or we could take the tack that the big book takes and say, worthiness is never a requirement, never. Willingness is. It doesn't say if you've decided you want what we have and are worthy and have good self-esteem, then you're ready to take the steps. It says if you're willing to go to any lengths to get it. Guys, I am not worthy. I wasn't worthy then. And even today, when I don't do psycho things anymore, I'm not worthy. And so I would never try to convince anyone that they were worthy. You know, who of us is worthy of God coming in and doing like a personal miracle in our lives? None of us. But worthiness isn't a requirement, only willingness. And that brings me to the last point. Well, God could restore me to sanity, and he would if I were really seeking him, if I were really doing the work. And on that point, I would say, you are right. If you're not doing the work, if you're not seeking him, then God has, you know, this program doesn't guarantee that God will restore you to sanity. So what I ask people to do is like make a list of all the things you say you're not willing to do. And sometimes people may come up with something that isn't a requirement. Like they may say, well, I'm not willing to change my religion. No one would ever ask someone to change their religion. Um, but if they say something like, I'm not willing to go to meetings, well, you know, then I would question whether a person really had a first step. And I would say, yeah, then, then um, you may be in some trouble, um, or at least this program isn't guaranteed to work for you and probably won't. I won't say definitely won't because, you know, God can do whatever he wants, but um, that's not how you work the formula for a miracle. So, um, but generally I have found the reason we think God won't restore us to sanity is because we think um, we're not worthy and worthiness doesn't matter. It doesn't. So um, I want to leave some time for questions. So I'm just going to talk about the minister's son back to him because there's a temptation for us to say, okay, I'm willing to believe God. Now you prove it by removing my food obsession or I believe in God, but it's not helping. And actually the AA 12 and 12 tells us we could have earnest religious beliefs which remain barren because we're still trying to play God ourselves, right? Um, God's not a genie in a bottle where I say, come down, you know, rub the bottle, come out like Aladdin's genie and remove my food obsession. 
So what does surrender look like? Um, the first thing it requires is honesty. If we are not honest, we may as well take a big black magic marker and write the word, keep out God across our hearts because God will not coexist with dishonesty. But um, to me, what surrender requires is best answered by um, the story in the minister's son on page 215. The minister's son's talking, he goes back to a fellow patient's room and says, I must ask you a question. How does prayer fit into this thing? Well, answers the fellow inmate, you've probably tried praying like I have. When you've been in a jam, you've said, God, please do this or that. And if it turned out your way, that was the last of it. Um, and if it didn't, you said there isn't any God or he hasn't done anything for me. Is that right? Yes, the minister's son replies. That isn't the way his fellow patient turned mentor continues. The thing I do is say, God, here I am and here are all my troubles. I've made a mess of things and can't do anything about it. You take me and all my troubles and do anything you want with me. Does that answer your question? And the minister's son says, yes, goes back to his room and he says, I am in the bottom of hell. There, a tremendous hope is born. It might be true. I tumble out of bed onto my knees. I know not what to say, but slowly a great peace comes to me. I feel lifted up. I believe in God. I crawl back into bed and sleep like a child. And we know from the rest of his story, he never drank again. So what was the key here? He didn't just surrender alcohol. He surrendered his whole life. He gave God all of it. God could take his alcohol obsession, his marriage, his job, everything. Um, surrender doesn't mean that we just like sit around like a lump of clay waiting for God to act. It means I do what I think God would have me and I trust him with the results. I don't look at what other people are doing unless I have an obligation to, right? If they're my young children I'm raising or if I'm a supervisor at work and I have to, you know, um, pay attention to what other people are doing, but I'm swimming in my lane and my focus has to be on God. And, um, we live this way and then we clean up the wreckage of our past. And then we just live in 10, 11 and 12, where we clean up the wreckage of each day. We pray and meditate so that we know God's will for us. And then we help other people like live get this miracle, live this miracle, and we practice recovery principles and everything we do. Um, on page 100, it says that the miracles just keep coming. The things which came to us when we put ourselves in God's hands were better than anything we could have planned. Follow the dictates of a higher power, and you will presently be living in a new and wonderful world, no matter what your present circumstances right? So my plans are limited by my imagination, but God's imagination is limitless. And this new and wonderful world that we live in, no matter what our present circumstances, I think it's um, the fourth dimension that Bill Wilson mentions on page eight, where he says, I was to know happiness, peace, and usefulness in a way of life that's incredibly more wonderful as time passes. Um, and that was my experience. Instead of that abusive boyfriend I had in college, I have a great husband with whom I just celebrated 21 years of marriage. 
I got my kids through the teen years with minimal battle scars. And now I talk to them pretty much every day while they're in college and they actually ask my advice on things. Um, and instead of aimlessly wondering why I'm on planet earth, I have a great sense of purpose. I have the best friends that anyone could ever want and an amazing fellowship. And I have freedom from the obsession that had me roam in the streets of New York City at two in the morning, spending my rent money. And just for you who are new or newly back, this, I am not unique. What I'm talking about is not unique. As it says on page 153, probably one of my other favorite lines, um, the age of miracles is with us. And it really and truly is. And with that, I will stop.